Well, good morning. My name is Jerry Denninger. I am really excited to have the opportunity to be with you in your homes or wherever you may be watching this service today. My wife and I have been attending this church since 1997, so we've been here a while. Uh, we love being here, and I really love the privilege of being able to sit here and open the Word and, and spend time with you guys today. I'm going to take you to a passage in John chapter 18 that has become over the years one of my favorite texts in Scripture. And as I've prayed for the last several weeks about what it is that the Lord would have me to talk about this morning, uh, this passage just kept coming to mind over and over again. So let me just pray for us as we get started, and then I'll set up the passage and we'll dive in. Father, wherever we are right now as we're watching this video, I pray that you would just remove distractions from us. You would remove those things that would cause us not to be fully present and fully here. Lord, we want you to speak through your word. I want you to speak through me. I want you to give me the words that you want me to say this morning. And Lord, we all want to be growing in our knowledge and understanding of who you are and becoming more like Christ. So use this passage and use the text to continue to transform us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So John chapter 18, I want to kind of set up this passage a little bit. Six years ago, I went with a group of leaders and crew and I work for a ministry called Athletes in Action, which is a part of crew. As a matter of fact, this church is supporters of my wife and I, Mallory and I, uh, financial supporters of us in our ministry. So a group of about 40 or so of us went to Israel back in 2014, about this time six years ago. So I don't know if any of you guys have had a chance to go to Israel, do one of those archaeological, biblical, theological tours, but they, are, they will transform your life. The way you read Scripture after being in Israel and opening the Word and looking at what you're reading, it's totally transformational. And so a gentleman by the name of Dr. John Hanna was the, the theological professor with us on this tour. And he, as a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, took us to a place called the Mount of Olives, which is where John chapter 18 is set. And he took us to a private garden in the Mount of Olives, we don't know exactly where the Garden of Gethsemane is in the Mount of Olives, but it, it could have been where we were in this private garden. And Dr. John Hanna opened up this passage and began to read, and it was like mind-blowing stuff to me as I began to read the passage. So let's dive in, and we'll start off here with verse 1. We're going to uh, kind of talk this morning through verses 1 through 11. So the first verse, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So first of all, let's set some context of what's happening here in John 18. So it says, when he had just spoken these words, well, where was Jesus right before this? Well, if you read the few chapters in John before that, Jesus was in the upper room. He was with his disciples. They had just had the Lord's Supper. They were conversing with each other. And when they were finished, Scripture says, he left the upper room went across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you're sitting and looking at Jerusalem, if Jerusalem is like round like this table, off to the east side is the eastern gate, the Kidron Valley with the brook Kidron at the bottom. And then you go up the valley and nestled up over here is the Mount of Olives. Why is it called the Mount of Olives? 
because it's full of olive trees. It's still olive trees there to this day. And one of the things that's really cool about it is that some of those olive trees actually date back to the time of Jesus' existence on the earth. So you can imagine walking up and placing your hand on an olive tree that Jesus might have actually leaned up against himself. Boy, that, that's just really cool, just that point alone. So that's kind of where they are and where this setting is set, is set up. Verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So here's the first point that I want to get across this morning. Jesus was training his betrayer on where to find him on this particular night. I mean, think about, think about that context. Jesus often went to this place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, everything in Jesus' life was totally on purpose. He never did anything on accident. Everything was incredibly intentional. So the fact that he went to this same garden over and over and over again was for the sole purpose of Judas being able to find him when they left the upper room. Now, when they were up in the upper room, one of the things that was happening in their conversation between Peter and, and John and Judas and Jesus was you know, Jesus made the statement, to whom dips his bread in the cup, he it is who's going to betray me. And Judas was the one who did that. And he looks at Judas in the eye after that, and he says, what you do, do quickly. So you see, Jesus knew exactly what Judas was going to do. He knew that was the night. He looked at Judas and said, what you do, do quickly. And then Judas got up and he left. And then what did Jesus do? He went to the place where he knew Judas was going to be able to find him because he was training his betrayer for the last three years on what was going to be unfolding on that evening. Incredible perspective. Let's keep going here. Verse 3. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. I love to put myself in the mind of the people who are in the scriptures that we're reading. So we kind of put ourselves in the mind of Judas a little bit. And, and, and I know I'm ad-libbing a little bit on the scripture to try to bring some life to it. So, so work with me here a little bit as I go through the text. Judas leaves the upper room after Jesus looks at him and says, what you do, do quickly. Did Judas know that Jesus knew what he was going to do? Uh, was Judas's heart just so hardened that it didn't matter if Jesus knew what he was going to do? I don't know. But either way, he left that upper room. He went to go see the Pharisees. And I can imagine the conversation going something like this. Hey, guys, tonight's the night. We've had a conversation. You've wanted me to identify who Jesus is. He's going to be in a private place. There's not going to be a lot of crowds. He's just going to have his band of apostles around him, 12 or so people. But he's going to go to this garden up on the Mount of Olives. And I can imagine the Pharisees saying, well, how do you know he's going to be in the garden? How did you figure that out? Hey, look, this guy is a man of routine. He does the same thing all the time. For years, he goes to the same garden after our meals I guarantee you he's going to be there. I've got this guy figured out. He's a man who's got patterns that just keep repeating over and over. And so the Pharisees, they get themselves together. Judas says one more thing. Hey, you might want to have the soldiers make sure they're prepared because we don't know exactly what kind of resistance we might get. These apostles, they love Jesus. They're committed to Jesus. There could be some resistance. And why do I even bring that up? Because John makes note 
in verse 3 of the lanterns and the torches and the weapons. So they obviously came ready to respond to any kind of resistance when they arrest Jesus. All right, let's keep on going to verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? So if we take a little step back, let's try to, let's try to bring you into what was happening to Jesus as these soldiers and the Pharisees were coming up the Mount of Olives. So if you go back and you read some of the other Gospels, and the Gospels, you know, they all contribute different pieces to this same story of what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Jesus, if you remember, he's up there with his 12 apostles, his disciples. He grabs three of them, Peter, James, and John. And he says, hey, guys, won't you come with me away from the rest of the disciples? And then he gets those three guys. He says, please pray with me. Please pray for me. And as Scripture says, he goes about a stone's throw away by himself, and he prays. And what is Jesus praying about in this moment? Well, he's asking the Lord if there's any other way for what's about to happen to him to change. Please, if this cup can pass from me, right? And he's praying, and he's so anxiety-filled and stress-filled of what he knows is coming, because he knows Judas is coming, and he knows what's going to happen once he gets taken into custody. He knows he's going to go through the most ridiculous, horrible death that he could imagine, that there's literally drops of blood dripping from his pores, Luke the physician in his gospel records that. Can you imagine the amount of anxiety and stress that you have to go through to literally have blood dropping from your body? But that's what Jesus is feeling in this space. Jesus comes back to Peter, James, and John, and he says, he catches them sleeping. He says, hey, guys, can't you stay awake with me a little bit longer? And then he goes off to pray. He comes back a second time, wakes him up the second time, goes off and prays while the blood is dripping from his body. The third time he comes back to Peter, James, and John, and he says, hey, guys, the time is here. My betrayer is at hand. Because that's when he saw the lanterns coming up the hill, and he knew Judas was coming. So he grabs those guys and says, it's time. Here's the time. The betrayer's here. And here's what it said that Jesus did. And I love this about Jesus. Jesus knew what was coming. And what he didn't do was he didn't come running back to Peter, James, and John and say, they found me. We got to get out of here. He didn't run across the other side of the Mount of Olives to try to hide. He didn't try to duck himself behind a tree. He didn't hide behind his apostles so that he could be protected. He stepped out and went directly to the Pharisees and the soldiers who were coming for him, and he asked the question, whom do you seek? One of the things I love about Jesus is that he is not a coward. He is a man of incredible courage and incredible inner strength. He knew what was coming. The most horrific circumstance he would ever face in his earthly life was, was just hours in front of him. And yet he did not buckle. He's dripping sweats of blood because of the anxiety and the stress that he's feeling in his human body. But yet he approached the people who were coming to take him into custody on his own initiative. They didn't have to come find him. And he said, whom do you seek? I love the courage and the boldness of the Jesus that we serve. So let's keep going. In verse 5, they answered him. When Jesus said, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. 
So Jesus, Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Guys, this, this, is, uh, this moment in Scripture, there's a few places in the Bible that I wish I could go back to and personally witness. And what I'm going to unpack for you right here, this would be easily in my top five list of one of those moments in, in biblical history I'd love to be there for. So Jesus, when he responds to whom do they seek, Jesus of Nazareth is what they say, and he says, I am he. What literally happens after he uses those words is the Romans and the Pharisees, Scripture says, what happens to them? They drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, can you imagine that sight? I mean, Jesus is talking. He identifies who he is. And the most powerful fighting force on the planet, the Roman soldiers, are thrown back to the ground. Now, there's two theories on exactly what happened in this space. One is that they fell face down. The other one, which Dr. John Hanna says, that this drew back and fell to the ground in the Hebrew is literally a Greek wrestling term, which means that they were literally pinned at the neck the most powerful fighting force on the planet, the Navy SEALs of today have been thrown back to the ground and are literally pinned at the neck and can't get up. Now let's unpack the words I am he a little bit because very literally in the Greek, it's not I am he. The he is added kind of for, for us in the English language. What Jesus literally says is I am Now, what is the I am a reference back to? Well, we go back to Exodus 3 when Moses is approaching the burning bush and God is speaking to the burning bush and talking to Moses that he wants him to release his people out of bondage and slavery in the nation of Egypt. And when Moses asks, who it is that I say is speaking to me? Like, what is your name and who's sending me? And he says, I am who I am. You tell them that I am sent you. Now, what does this idea of I am mean? Now, Kendrick actually talked about this just a few weeks ago right here in this place. He was talking about the I am. And so the I am, I want to capture some of these phrases to get them precisely right because it's so powerful. I am means that God is self-existent. He is the sustainer of all that exists. He cannot change, and he is eternal. He exists for all time. So Jesus in this moment... When they say, you know, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he responds and he says, I am. I am. No one can add anything to me. No one can take anything away from me. I, everything is existing because of me. I sustain everything that exists. I am. Can you imagine what the Pharisees were thinking in that space? Do you think they knew what he was saying about himself and that they knew that he was referring back to Exodus 3? I think they absolutely knew what he was saying. So he says, I am. And then everyone falls back to the ground. Unbelievable, unbelievable moment in biblical history to be able to see. Let's keep, uh, let's keep moving down the passage a little bit. We'll unpack a few more scenarios that are really interesting to think about. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? One of the questions that I like to ask myself is, why in this moment did Jesus respond with I am and cause the most powerful fighting force on the planet to fall to the ground? Well, I believe that Jesus one more time wanted to demonstrate that he was completely in control of the situation. You see, it wasn't like this army, these soldiers, wasn't like they snuck up on him and they surround him and Jesus didn't see him coming. It wasn't like they were tracking him down over miles and miles of countryside in Israel. No, Jesus went to the place where he knew he would be found. The soldiers showed up. He says, I am, because I think one more time, he wanted to demonstrate that he was completely in control. And that these soldiers only had authority in this moment because God the Father had given them that authority. And that he was not actually being captured or arrested. He was surrendering. So many Bibles, they use this caption uh, for this section where they will talk about the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. I don't like the idea that Jesus was arrested. Jesus wasn't arrested like he was tracked down. Jesus surrendered his life. He didn't try to get away. He approached them on his own initiative. And then he showed them just one more time, gentlemen, I want you to know that you're not taking me. I'm surrendering to you, and I am totally in charge of what's happening here. So, on the ground. Does that not boggle your minds? I can't, I I wish I could have seen that, that moment. So, What do you think the soldiers are feeling as they're pinned to the ground? They're probably terrified, right? Nobody ever pins a Roman soldier to the ground. Like they didn't see anybody touch him. Can you imagine they're laying on the ground and and, and they can't get up and they're looking around. They're probably thinking that they're about to be killed, run through with a sword by somebody. They don't know what hit them. All they know is that they're stuck and they can't move. All right, so let's talk about Peter here as we looked at these last couple of verses. I love the Apostle Peter because he is so much just a a regular guy like you and me. So Peter is the guy, as you read through all the Gospels, he's the first apostle that's mentioned every time the apostles' names come up. Peter's the first guy that's mentioned. Peter is always the spokesperson on behalf of the apostles. Peter always kind of overreacts does things without thinking, says things without thinking, and just responds harshly at times. But Peter is also the guy in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus took him up there and they're standing at this place where babies were sacrificed to idols in a a hole that was called um, the gates of hell. And you can actually read this in the Gospels where Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you know, Jesus asks, you know, who, who do you think I am? He said, you're the, you're the Lord. And Jesus says, upon this rock I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus loves Peter. That's the same Peter. Peter's a guy who gets out of the boat and trusts Jesus because he's so excited and runs toward Jesus and he starts to sink. All that's who Peter is. And what is Peter going to do just a few hours later? 
Peter's actually going to deny Jesus just a few hours later. So he's a man who loves Jesus, but he acts in ways that are just don't make a lot of sense. He says things that don't make a lot of sense at times if you read his story. All right, so that's a little bit about Peter because I want to set that up because I think it describes Peter's actions in these last two verses. Here's another element to understand. And Kedrick actually talked about this in recent weeks as well. The apostles didn't really understand exactly what Jesus was talking about when he says, I'm the king of the Jews. I'm going to go establish my kingdom. I have a house with many rooms, right? The apostles are thinking, Jesus, he's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's actually going to eliminate the Romans from Israel. He's going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and he's going to rule the country, and we're going to get our country back. That's what these apostles keep thinking. And they believe Jesus is this guy because he's validated his authority through these miracles where he's raised Lazarus from the dead. He's demonstrated power over the environment. He's healed the sick. He's done all kinds of things that the apostles are thinking, yep, I believe this Jesus is the guy we've been looking for. He's going to overthrow the Romans, and he's going to take charge in Jerusalem, and we are going to be at his right hand. That's what they think Jesus is talking about. So imagine this scene. Peter's standing back there. He's watching the interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees. They ask him, you know, Jesus asked him, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. Peter's watching. He sees all these guys fall to the ground. What do you think Peter's thinking in that moment? Well, I'm going to tell you what I think Peter's thinking. I think Peter got incredibly excited in that moment. Because I think he's going, this is it. This is the time we've been waiting for. I've been waiting for Jesus to overtake, to overpower the Roman soldiers, and to eliminate them from control and authority. He's doing it. These Roman soldiers are on the ground before Jesus. I can imagine his enthusiasm and excitement is going through the roof because he's been dreaming of this day. And tonight's the night when, the, when it all begins to happen. The overthrow of the Romans. It's going to begin. And then in Peter's mind, the unthinkable happens. The soldiers get up, and they're standing. Okay, so let's think about those Roman soldiers for a minute. I don't know how long Jesus held them onto the ground. I don't know if it was 15, 20 seconds or three minutes, you know. But however amount of time it was, it probably felt like a lifetime to those Roman soldiers and the Pharisees. And what kind of a mood do you think those soldiers were in when they finally got off the ground? I think they were scared. I think they were angry. And I think they were ready to kill everybody. And so I think when the Roman soldiers were finally released to stand back up, that they came up, drew their swords, and they were ready to go. So in that moment of time where Peter's thinking, we're finally going to take over, and then he sees them come up, and he sees them about to attack. I think Peter just gets excited like Peter does. He grabs his sword out of his sheath, and he comes in swinging. Now, let's enter in Malchus. He's got a unique story in the gospel, doesn't he? I think about old Malchus. He's, he's standing there. Don't really know what his role was in the whole situation and that conversation. But old Malchus, do you think Malchus just stood there and said, all right, Peter, give me your best shot? No, I don't think so. And do you think Peter was aiming for Malchus's ear? 
I don't think so. I think Peter was coming in. He was trying to split a skull open. Anybody. Malchus happened to be the guy in front of him. So Malchus tries to get in the way, and his ear gets cut off. Now, here's what, here's what Scripture says happened in that moment. Jesus jumps in. If you go back in the, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus jumps in in this moment of where chaos is about to completely erupt. The soldiers are coming at everybody. Peter's coming with his sword. He cuts off Malchus's ear, and Jesus jumps in there, and he says, enough of this. And, and I can imagine Jesus putting his, 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 his hand in Peter's chest and pushing him back and, and stopping the soldiers from coming. Enough of this. And he looks at Peter and he says, do you not know, this is in Matthew, you read that gospel, do you not know that I could appeal to my father and more than 12 legions of angels could come down? Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Then he reaches down and and Luke, the physician, appropriate he would write about this, and he picks up Malchus's ear and he puts it back and heals Malchus's ear. Can you imagine the story that Malchus goes home with that night? Goes back to his wife, lays in the bed. She says, well, honey, how was your day? And he's, well, what do you think? Is, is it on right? And he shows him his ear. It had to be an incredible interaction. But in that moment, Jesus jumps in. He stops what could have been absolute bloodshed. And I think about the 12 legions of angels. Now, what what is a legion? It's actually a military term that that refers to approximately 6,000 soldiers. And so Jesus says, do you not know that I can appeal to the Father and more than 12 legions of angels can come? So Jesus is saying, I've got 72,000 angels at my disposal, Peter. I don't need your help. This is the Father's will. This is what he wants to have happen. And I I try to imagine this scene in heaven of 72,000 angels gathered around in a circle looking down in this one spot on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and the angels, they don't really understand what's all happening either because they're in disbelief. If you read Scripture and, and, and kind of see some of the writings on how the angels thought about this, it's like, Jesus, you're the, you're, the, you're the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, and you were born, came to this earth, lived amongst the creation that you created, and you're allowing yourself to be humiliated, antagonized. You're about to get destroyed and and beaten and killed. You're allowing, Jesus, you belong up here with us at the right hand of the Father, but yet you're doing this. All you have to do, Jesus, is just give us a nod, give us a little flick of a finger, and we will completely take care of this for you. But Jesus doesn't call on anybody to rescue him. Because he's submitting to the will of the Father. I I just love that visual of thinking of 72,000 angels in disbelief trying to grasp why the creator of the universe is going to willingly choose to surrender his life to die for you and me. 
So why do I tell you this story? Well, there's a few things. Number one, it kind of wraps up and kind of ties into the Easter story from just a few weeks ago. This is, this is the events that happened, obviously, right before the crucifixion. And then, obviously, the most powerful demonstration of Jesus was when he was resurrected. The other one is that we live in a time with this coronavirus pandemic where we are all feeling a whole lot of different degrees of stress and anxiety and pressure. And we serve a Jesus who can identify with stress and anxiety and pressure. As he sat in that garden and dripped drops of blood with the anxiety. If you're feeling that stress and anxiety today from what we're going through, Jesus can identify and connect with you. If you ever have someone tell you Christianity is for the weak, Christianity is for the soft person. Man, Christianity, it's a crutch. You, you just go to Jesus because you need help. And I'll tell you this, I need all the help I can get. If Jesus is a crutch, I want him under both of my arms. But the one thing that Jesus is not is, is he is not soft. He is not weak. The Jesus that we read in this passage who stood before the people who were going to torture and kill him and said, I am he, and then forced them to, to, to fall to the ground in front of his presence to demonstrate his power, there is nothing weak about this Jesus. And this Jesus that we read about in John 18, this is the exact same Jesus that you and I have accepted into our life. This power that Jesus demonstrates in John 18 lives inside of us. And so the final thought that I want to leave with you is that there is indeed power in the name of Jesus. It doesn't mean that all the hard things and the stress and the anxiety is going to go away in our life. But what it does mean is that this Jesus that we read about in John 18, he lives in you and me. If we've accepted Christ into our life, and accepted his death on the cross as payment for the penalty of our sins, this is the Jesus that you and I serve. This is the Jesus that you and I love. This is the Jesus that lives inside of us, that gives us the capacity to become the people that he wants us to become. So if there's nothing else that you hear today, I want you to be excited about worshiping Jesus. I want you to be excited about the power that lives inside of us, and I want you to be excited about the capacity that you and I have to respond to incredibly difficult circumstances in the ways that God would want us to, because this is the power that dwells in us. Let's pray. Father, I, I love this passage, and I love the way it demonstrates this aspect of your power and how much you loved us, that you surrendered yourself so that we could have a relationship with the Father. That you didn't run away from the hardest situation in your life, but you faced it head on. And you didn't call on any of those 72,000 plus angels to come rescue you because you were obedient to the Father and because you loved me. You loved all of us that's listening to this video this morning. 
You want us to have a relationship with the Father, and you have allowed that to happen through your horrible, horrible, brutal beating and death on a cross, and then resurrection three days later. Father, thank you for the power that is in you. Thank you for living inside of us. Lord, I I will freely admit to everyone listening, I am overwhelmingly in love with you. And to think that you live inside of me and want to have an intimate relationship with me and every one of us individually is overwhelming for me to think about. Father, I pray that you would wake us up every morning with a passion to want to pursue you, a passion to want to spend time in your word, a passion to want to spend time in your presence. And Lord, when we're faced with those moments of stress and anxiety, Lord, bring passages like this to mind that cause us to remember who you are and who you are in us and that we have the capacity to move forward in Christ regardless of what we're faced with. In Christ's name we pray, amen.